and then turn with me, please, or just listen along to Romans chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. Uh, though again, as I did last time, I'll read beginning in verse 1 just to give the continuity. But our emphasis is verses 6 and 7. Hear the word of God, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David, according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through him, we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. Beginning now uh, with the new material, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ to all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And let us pray together. Our father in heaven, we are thankful uh, again for your word, one which is rich, one which is powerful, uh, one which is uh, humbling and revealing. We ask you, O God, that through the preaching, your word might be unfolded and expounded to us in such a way that we might comprehend it, that we might find not only that we are wrestling with it, but it is wrestling with us and that it is uh, well making something of us as Christians. We ask you, O God, that is to say that you would make to us the preaching a means of grace, an effectual means of grace by which we are made better and sanctified. We ask this in Jesus name. Amen. Well, we are here uh, still looking at Paul's introduction. And uh, just like Ephesians chapter 1, which we read uh, a little bit ago, I can say uh, similarly of Romans chapter 1, though I don't think it ever occurred to me quite in the same way way until I began to preach it. uh, And that is, Paul is saying in his introduction a great deal. In fact, I'm amazed to discover how much how much he's saying. One of the things that we have to remember about Romans especially, but really about all his epistles, but just think about the Roman situation when he's saying, I'm longing to see you so that I can preach the gospel to you there, but this will have to do for now in essence. And when you see the letter in in the midst of that context, what you recognize, understanding that Paul's ministry when he would visit a place would be actually to do daily preaching, uh, and to continually expound and unfold his thought. You remember there was a time when he preached so late into the night that someone literally fell out of the window and died. Uh, what Paul is doing here, now he revived that person, thankfully, uh, let me remind you. But uh, Paul was capable of, of, uh, of expounding the thought at great length. What he's doing in Romans is summarizing. He's summarizing the teaching that once he did arrive in Rome, he would preach to them, he would unfold, he would expound to them. Uh, and so that's the way uh, I'm looking at it, and that's what I'm seeking to do, is to extract as much of the meaning as I can uh, from this summary message. That's what Romans is, that's what Ephesians is. Uh, let me also say this, uh, one of the things, uh, one of the liabilities of preaching Romans, and this is one of the reasons I put it off for so long, not only is it such a great letter, but it's such a familiar letter. We're all familiar with its contents. Uh, I think... Uh, Romans is the book I've preached the most without actually preaching 
through the book. We just love so many of the passages. But the danger is that we can become overly familiar with it. And one of the things that I'm already discovering is that there is so much that lies beneath the surface that we miss, even in our great familiarity with it. And so one of the ways to shake free from that is to really dive deep. I can't say that we'll do that, taking it a verse or two uh, all the way through, uh, but uh, we may. I don't know. But I can tell you that the introduction is incredibly, incredibly rich, far more so uh, than I ever realized. The introduction, uh, beginning obviously in verse 1, works up to the great summary statement in verses 16 and 17 where Paul states his theme. I won't read it, but uh, we'll get to it eventually. And you know basically what he says. He states his theme and then he works out that idea for the entire letter. That is the doctrine of justification by faith alone, which we also, uh, not today, but we, we happen to also be studying in Sunday school. A doctrine which we will discover and which I have asserted in the, in the original sermon is uh, is the single theme of the whole of the book. And Paul takes that theme, he expounds it for the entire book, which tells us that that doctrine is something which is capable of a rich and a full exposition. It's the kind of thing that you have to expound. It is, uh, as the Protestant reformers would say, and I in agreement with them, the bedrock of genuine Christian experience, even unto a full assurance of faith. So that the best Christians we will see, and by this I mean the most effective ones, the best of Christ's disciples, those who are called greatest in the kingdom of God, are those who build upon this rock, the rock of justification by faith alone. Not of human works and of human merit, but upon a faith in Jesus Christ as our righteousness and our salvation. But we also discover in the unfolding of this doctrine that Paul along the way, and this is once we get past the introduction, he has to answer objection after objection after objection after objection. And so much of the letter is, is him posing a question that they were posing and then seeking to answer it. But always uh, and in every way he is affirming to them the doctrine of justification. But for now all that has to wait. We haven't gotten to it yet. We'll get to it in verses 16 and 17. But for now it has to wait. We're still at the beginning. We're considering what Paul has to say at the outset before he comes to the main doctrine and the teaching. It would be easy, of course, just to breeze through these first 17 verses in one sermon. And I was tempted to do that. But I think we've already seen it, that you would agree by now that that would be a mistake. We've noticed already how much Paul is saying at the beginning. He is laying the foundation to the main teaching. Thus far, we've noticed Paul's emphasis on two things primarily. First, his apostleship. And connected with this, how he ever came to be an apostle, it was through Jesus Christ, he says, who called him and who set him apart to preach the gospel. But also, especially, which we've seen for the last two sermons, the gospel of God. That's all in verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto, or separated to, the gospel of God. Something that uh, itself is capable of a rich and a full explanation. It's what we considered not only last time, but in the sermon before. The gospel of God, the contents of that gospel. The gospel, he says, which concerns Jesus Christ our Lord in verses 2 through 4, but especially 3 and 4. Which is the true foundation of all that Paul will go on to say about justification. The foundation of 
the doctrine of justification, our personal justification, the fact that I am declared righteous in the sight of God by faith in the Son of God, is the gospel. The gospel is the foundation, the gospel about Jesus Christ, or the gospel which concerns Jesus Christ. You see, strictly speaking, justification by faith is not the gospel. And in some sense, it pains me to say this, but accuracy requires that I must say it. Justification is more like the result of the gospel, because the gospel concerns God's son. It tells us all about him. What was true of him uh, before the world, but then especially what he did in coming into this world to save it. Again, the gospel concerns Jesus Christ, or I've even heard it put this way. The gospel is Jesus Christ. But then with this understanding, as for instance, we find in the four Gospels, there's the word again. What do you find in the four Gospels? You learn all about Jesus. And then you find the apostles preaching that message, as for instance, Peter did in his Pentecost sermon. He summarized the Gospel. And then we find Paul doing it at the beginning of the the, the letter to the Romans. Seeing the Gospel like that. We understand, or we are left rather with the question, just as the Jews asked Peter after he preached this same gospel at Pentecost, what must we do to be saved? In other words, what is the effect of the gospel upon me, the gospel of Jesus Christ? It's been preached to me. I've heard all about Jesus, his preexistent eternity, his life upon this world, his death on the cross, his resurrection. What must I now do to be saved by him? And it's at this point that the, that the, the discussion or the doctrine of justification by faith comes in. And so uh, to sum up what I'm trying to say, we might look again or just listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 4, verse 25, speaking of Christ who was delivered up because of our offenses and he was raised because of our justification. Jesus died and he was raised. That is the gospel. But what is the result? The result of his death is that he puts away our transgressions. And the result of his resurrection is our justification. The result is that we are forgiven and that we are justified. We are declared righteous by his death and his resurrection. We are justified by faith alone in this gospel. But you notice, even now at the very outset, having laid out in summary form the contents of this gospel, Paul begins to deal with his readers and to describe their relationship to the gospel. Verses 6 and 7, let me read them again. Among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ to, to all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In verses 1 through 5, what Paul was doing was to describe his own relationship to the gospel and to the Son of God. But now he begins to describe theirs as well, including ours. And you notice he does so in the same terms, for salvation is one and the same for all. That is the central assertion of the epistle. He says in verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. And later on, he'll say there's no distinction. He actually says that many times in this epistle. All are saved in exactly the same way, whether that person is an apostle or not, or a Jew or a Greek or a man or a woman. It doesn't matter. Whoever will be saved 
will be saved in this way. First, he will be called of God, verse 6, among whom you also are the called, excuse me, not of God, but the called of Jesus Christ, verse 6. You see, in verse 6 and in verse 7 as well, Paul is describing what a Christian is, which is the purpose of these two verses. He's addressing them like this because that is what they are. They are Christian people. A Christian is someone, he's, he says, who is called of Jesus Christ. That's why he is a Christian and not something else. It wasn't that he decided to be a Christian. It wasn't his own powers of intellect that led him to conclude this teaching was sound. It was rather the result, Paul says, of something that God did. God called him. This is something we'll come back to when we come to verse 7 and we find these three descriptors of the Christian. He's beloved, he's called, and he's a saint or he's holy. But for now, we should simply ask the question in verse 6, who is it that calls? And I've already more or less answered the question. It's God who calls. It isn't man. Man doesn't become a Christian by man's activity. He's called by God into fellowship with God through his son. Which is the uniform teaching of the New Testament. But even then, we're left with the question, is it Jesus who does the calling or the father? And here, if you read the commentaries and the theology books, you will read, I couldn't find anyone who said anything otherwise, that it is the Father, properly speaking, who calls us unto his Son. We are called of Jesus by the Father. That's the standard answer at any rate. But at the same time, I couldn't help but thinking this objection, as I read that over and over again, don't we find Jesus calling men unto himself in the Gospels? Repeatedly, we find him doing that. Come unto me, you who are weary and heavy laden. And so I'm not sure it's entirely clear. I think it's enough simply to say that it is God who calls and not man. And what matters is that we see that a Christian is one. He is among those, Paul says, who are called of Jesus Christ. That is, he's not only called by God, but now as a result of this call, he is of Jesus Christ. Formerly he was of the world. He belonged to the world. That was his realm. That was where he lived. But now as a result of the call of God. He is of Jesus Christ. And that is the realm in which he now lives. In the realm of fellowship with Jesus Christ. And fellowship with those who have fellowship with Jesus Christ. Here is one Paul says. Who belongs to Jesus. He confesses Jesus as Lord and so he is. Again, he belongs to those among whom are called of Jesus. Verse 6. We might also notice the connection between what is said in verse 6 with verse 5. Together they read this. Through him we have received grace and apostleship. But then skipping down. Among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. You notice the progression of thought. Through whom we... And then verse 6, among whom you, Paul is drawing an obvious and deliberate parallel. And you notice the progression of thought. What was true of Paul was true of them as well. We received grace from him. We were called of him. You likewise received grace and were called of him. Also, taking those two verses together, we see that they are included in those who have obeyed the gospel. 
through whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus. You are to be numbered among those to whom we have preached unto the obedience of faith. And you are among those, he says, who have responded with the obedience of faith. When the gospel was preached, you you obeyed, you had faith. And how was it that that happened? That even those who were in Rome obeyed the gospel. It was the call of God. It was that they were called of God by Jesus Christ. Again, verse 6. When you take them together, you see this. But then moving on to verse 7. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. I'll just stop there. We notice that what Paul is doing is to amplify the thought in verse 7 of verse 6. Once again, you notice by the first phrase, to all who are in Rome, how eager Paul is to abolish the old distinctions. He isn't interested in whether you're a Jew or a Greek, a man or a woman, a bond or free. Or again, the distinction between the apostle or the laity. The letter, he says, applies to all equally. It's for everyone who is a Christian. Everyone who is a Christian ought to have a great interest in the contents of this letter. His only interest... In writing it is this. Are you among those who are called? Are you a Christian? Well, then the letter is for you in all of its contents. And so he amplifies this idea and what he says next. He's once again describing the Christian in his relation to the gospel. How did he ever come to believe it? How did the summons to repent and believe capture his heart so that he obeyed in faith? Even as so many others heard the same message and fell away in unbelief. In essence, one man was affected by the message and his whole life was changed. Another man heard the same message and nothing happened to him. How do you account for this difference? One man's life is revolutionized by the gospel and it can never be the same. And another man's life is unaffected. He simply goes on as though nothing had happened. Though, again, he is confronted by the same gospel. In other words, if you go back to the idea of power, which we considered in detail last time. Power as the deciding factor. Now for Jesus that he has been raised and therefore the deciding factor now of the church in its relationship to the resurrected Lord. We see that the gospel is a display of the power of God. And Paul says as much at the conclusion of his introduction. Not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God. And that's how we know it, who are Christians. To be confronted with the gospel and to believe it is to be overcome, you might say, by the power of God. And we notice in the mighty change that occurs in a man's life that something powerful has occurred to him. The gospel comes to us with power. And yet, again, it would seem for the other man who doesn't believe there's no power in the message. What is it that accounts for this? To one man it is the power unto God and to salvation. To another it appears to be devoid of power. How came it to be that when I heard the gospel it came to me as the power of God to save. Whereas this other man to him it was just words. Well here we have something almost like a golden chain. Before we come to what Paul says in Romans 8 where we actually find the, Roman, uh, we find the golden chain. 
where he describes what the Christian is and why the gospel is to him what it is. Again, he's describing the Christian in his relationship to the gospel. He says to all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called, and then you might see in italics, to be saints. But you could really take them as three descriptors. And that's what would appear if you looked in the Greek. Beloved of God, called saints. Three adjectives or descriptors that describe the true Christian. They describe once more not what is true of him in terms of himself. Not something he decided to be. But rather something that is true of him solely because of God. Because of the power of God. They describe his relation to God primarily and then once more to the gospel. The Christian is one who is beloved by God. He is called by God and he is a saint. And he is so as a result of God's decision to save him. Which comes out most clearly in the first descriptor, beloved of God. And here I would just notice that the order of these three words is highly important. You can't mix them up. You have to take them in order. Beloved called saints. As Robert Haldane says, they were saints because they were called. And they were called because they were beloved of God. And so we begin with this. Our first description of the Christian. In explaining to us why the gospel comes to him in a saving way. Why he responds in faith and repentance when the other man does not. It's because he's beloved of God. It is not, first of all, primarily you see that he so loved God. That he believed the gospel. But that God so loved him. That he believed the gospel. In the final analysis, that is the only reason any man ever became a Christian. It's the only reason he is what he is. There's nothing else in the whole world that explains the fact that there is a single Christian other than the fact that he is beloved of God. And so the theme here is the love of God. And do you know that that is one of the great themes of the book of Romans as Paul is unfolding and expounding this great doctrine of justification when he considers the gospel in its true nature and in its outcome. The way that it comes to us and what it tells us about God and his relationship to us. Paul, throughout this epistle, speaks of love over and over and over again. The gospel is an amazing display of the love of God, Paul is saying. One that is almost unthinkable in human terms. In other words, it's a love which is unimaginable if you were to conceive of it purely In terms of human love, here is a love, Paul says, which only God is capable of. And the amazing thing that we discover about God in the gospel is that he really does love us. Romans chapter 5, verse 5 and following. Here's uh, one of many statements where Paul, in in uh, unfolding the gospel, reflects upon the amazing love on display. Now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For when we were called for when we were still without strength in, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man, someone would dare uh, to die. But God demonstrates again his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And, and on and on he goes along those lines. What an amazing display of love. But then, especially on the subject, we think of what he says in Romans chapter 8. And don't be so quick to get to the end of the chapter. Remember what he says in verses 
14 through 16. He says, again, speaking of the ministry of the Holy Spirit and assuring us of the love of God, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. What does it mean to be a son of God? It means, once again, just as Paul says at the beginning of the epistle, that we are beloved of God. We are beloved of God, the Father. We are his own dear children, whom he regards as his own children, whom he loves. And then you remember how the great chapter ends. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we're killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so the love of God, Paul is saying, Already in verse 7, but he will go on to say over and over and over again, is the great thing on display in the gospel. And it is the great thing that we as Christians are able to experience when the gospel comes to us with power so that we believe it. The thing that we are amazed by, the thing that overwhelms and overcomes us as we are confronted with the gospel. The gospel claims us, it so grips us and changes us because it is a powerful experience and confrontation with primarily, once more, the love of God. It is the gospel and nothing else that forces me to conclude I am beloved of God. I am one whom God loves. And if so, well then, as Paul says, we know, verse 28 of chapter 8, that all things work together for good to those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. And so when Paul says, beloved of God, he is speaking of an eternal love. The love which God has set upon me even before the foundation of the world. And he is explaining his actions toward me in terms of that love. All of the actions with regard to me from God flow from this love. Even that, he says in Romans chapter 8, of giving over his own son for me. Verse 31. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? And who could ever conclude, he goes on to say, that God does not love us. But let me also say this about the subject and of the phrase beloved of God. Let me assert that this is something, a designation to be beloved of God that belongs primarily to the son of God. It is something that is enjoyed especially by Jesus because he alone is the true son of God, the beloved of the father. We see this especially in the high priestly prayer. The relationship that exists between the two, the father and the son, is one of perfect love and harmony. 
The Father has no greater love than He has for His own, His only Son. Yes, but realize that. And then realize this. Here is the amazing thing. That we too should be beloved of the Father. What does this mean? It means that God now includes us in His Son. When He considers us, He considers us only as we are found in Him. The called of Jesus Christ. In other words, those who belong to Him. Those who are comprehended in Him. Those for whom He stands in heaven as a great high priest. Are you starting to understand the argument? The book of Romans. Why it is that the Christian is able to conclude so conclusively that God loves the Christian. And do you see what it means now to be a Christian? We are called of Jesus Christ. We are comprehended in him. And so we are loved by the father. As the love which he has for the son flows to him from the everlasting fountain of that perfect love which he has for the son. So that love now flows to us. Again, Romans chapter 5, verse 5. Now hope does not disappoint because love, the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. It is poured out, or another translation, it is shed abroad now in our hearts. Yes, and as Paul says again in Romans chapter 8, if God so loved us with the kind of love that he has for his son, then obviously nothing can ever separate us from it. And all things of necessity must work together for my good. Our position is absolutely secure. The Christian is one who is beloved of God. And from this he says, secondly, that we are called. Specifically, if you agree with uh, the translators uh, in adding in italics the words to be, we are called to be saints. Uh, But let us just look at the first word in that phrase, called. The second main descriptor of the Christian, what it is to be called. One of the things that Jesus says, you may remember, many are called, but few are chosen, which is actually a little bit confusing. It explains the thought, but it does so. In, uh, in a way that's slightly confusing because the word called is a little, uh, as, it, as it appears in Romans, is a little closer to the word chosen. When Jesus says many are called but few are chosen. When Jesus says many are called, he's speaking of something more like a general kind of call that goes out to all men indiscriminately to be uh, saved, to repent and believe rather to be saved in order to be saved. But then when he says, but few are chosen, he is again reflecting upon uh, the fact that only a few respond savingly in faith. Only a few, a select few, actually respond and become Christians and so enjoy the love of the Father. And what accounts for the difference? Jesus says that few are chosen, even though many are called. They and they only are the ones who enjoy the special call of God, the distinguishing call. What theologians call the effectual call. You'll find that language in the Westminster Confession of Faith. There's an entire chapter on the subject of the effectual call. And that's what Paul is speaking of here when he says called. It is effectual in this sense that when it goes out, it actually does something. To to others, the call does nothing. 
it only hardens them further in unbelief. But to those who are beloved of God from eternity, when the call reaches them, it lays hold of them and grips them and does something to them. It becomes to them the power of God unto salvation. You might notice how Peter connects these two ideas when he tells us in Second Peter chapter one to make our calling and election sure. Well, the election was the first point to be beloved of God and the calling is the second point. Both are true only of Christians and the only way to be sure you're a Christian, Peter is saying, is to be sure of your calling and election. But then the third of these is saints, beloved, called saints. He who is beloved of God is he who is called to be a saint. Or as it seems to me, I would just strike out the words in italics, taking them as a series of adjectives or descriptors and just leave it to stand on its own like the others. The Christian is beloved of God. The Christian is called of God and the Christian is a saint or he's holy. And so we could say thirdly that the Christian is someone who is a saint. The third descriptor. If you read the New Testament epistles, you will see this constantly. Paul is constantly referring to the church as being composed of saints. And you very often find that in the introduction to his letters. And so we must try to understand what he means by this, recognizing once again that he is describing what a Christian is and how the gospel comes to him. He doesn't mean, uh, let us see what the Roman Catholics mean, very obviously, someone who is extraordinary and unusual. Or as we sometimes mean when we say something like this about someone else, he's an eminently, eminently saintly person. In either case, you see, we, uh, the Protestants or the Roman Catholics, are describing someone who is unusual, someone who is exceptional, someone who is saintly, we would say. But neither of these descriptions is uh, true to the New Testament sense of the term, the New Testament uh, designation of the Christian. And that is that the Christian is a saint. The first thing we must see, and I would stress again, is that if we are a Christian, if we are among the called of Jesus Christ, then we are saints of necessity. It's something that's automatic. It is as true of us if we are Christians as our election and as our calling. To be beloved of God and called by him is to be a saint. It's all included in the same idea. And yet you notice again, stressing here the order, it's the last in order. It's something that comes last, not first. God doesn't love us because we're saints. We become saints because he loves us and because he calls us. In other words, it's the result of our election and our calling. Election is something that stands in eternity, the love of God, the love which he had for us before the foundation of the world. And then the calling is something that happens in time when the gospel comes to us. As a summons to repent and believe and be saved. But then as a result of this call, we become saints. Before the call, we were vile sinners, those who hated God. But now that the electing love of God has reached down to us poor sinners in time, it's made us saints. That's the effect of the gospel. How are we to understand it? What does it mean to be a saint? Well, like the others, we should see that it is entirely something God does to us and for us. We are saints as a result of God and not ourselves. In other words, we don't just decide to be a saint or we don't become a saint as a result of many years of progressive holiness. 
No man becomes a saint through his own actions or life. A saint is someone, let us see, who is set apart. That's what the word actually means. Or holy. He's set apart. It's very similar in this sense to what Paul says about himself in verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set, or, set apart or separated to the gospel of God. And you notice the same two ideas standing together. Paul was someone who was called and as a result of this, he was set apart to the gospel. He's saying that is exactly the experience of these Christians. And that is our experience of the gospel as well. As a result of God's calling, we are set apart to the gospel, just like Paul. And the only difference is that we are not apostles. And so when you think of what does it mean to be a saint, again, get rid of the Roman Catholic notion, even get rid of what is sometimes the Protestant notion, and think of it in terms of Paul. I am someone who is set apart to the gospel. So that now the biggest thing in my life, the the greatest influence and the greatest consideration in all of my decisions, all of my thoughts, all of my actions is the gospel. And so that is something that is not exceptional, but that is common to everyone who is a Christian. The Christian is someone now for whom the gospel has come into his life. It has intruded into his life. He is conscious of the call. He is conscious of the fact that God has now set him apart. And now everything. Everything that he now does and thinks. Is done and thought in terms of the gospel. And so you see to be a saint has certain practical implications. One is that he now, like Paul, assigns the greatest value to the gospel. He thinks of his whole life in terms of the gospel. I am one who is set apart. But even then, this works, it out, it works itself out practically in his life. He realizes, once again, being conscious of the call of God in separating him, that he doesn't have to do certain things in order to become a saint. That isn't what he's after. But he realizes, rather, instead, that he already is one. I, as a Christian, am a saint. Let us all see that clearly about ourselves. But then as a result of that, as he practically works out that thought, he realizes not that the goal of his life is to become a saint, but rather the goal of his life is to reflect the fact that he is a saint. In other words, let others see now what is true of myself. Let it be clear not only to myself, and to, but, but also to others, that I am one who is called and set apart. Again, notice the order. He doesn't seek to become a saint. He realizes he already is one. But now he wishes for his life to be, or or to reflect rather, what is true of him. And thus, if you think of it in those terms, you understand why Paul, when he comes to the practical portion of the epistle, uh, speaks in the way he does, beginning in chapter 12, verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And then on and on he goes. Again, what he is saying there to people who have grasped not only the gospel, but their own relationship to it. That our lives should reflect what is true of us. If we are priests, then we should offer priestly service in essence. And we find Peter saying the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 2. 
that we ought to live in such a way that reflects that we have grasped our true station as Christian people. We are beloved, we are called, we are saints. But then finally, Paul says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The final phrase we find in verse 7. And again, we ought to notice that it's his message to them all, to all who are in Rome, all who are called, all who are saints. This is the equal position, possession of all who are Christian people. Grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace understood as undeserved favor. Peace understood as being at peace with he who was once our enemy. And that is the sense of Romans chapter 5 verse 1 when Paul brings the two ideas together, grace and peace. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And there is here, you notice the instrument, instrumentality again of Jesus Christ. Grace and peace come to us from the Father, but also from the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, technically speaking... They only come to us from the Father through Jesus Christ because he is the mediator. He is the channel and the instrument by which God sends forth his grace and the one by whom the two parties are made to be at peace. Grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. There is your call to worship. The way we begin every worship service. Again, did you notice that when we read it? Well, let me remind you. What I've been saying, that this is the equal possession of every true Christian, and it is always so. That is why we must begin our worship with this reminder. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, as we consider, how was it that we ever got into this place? That we are now with a renewed heart able to worship God as those who are at peace with God. And there is only one answer. It is this. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the Christian is one who is at peace with God. He is one to whom God has been gracious. He is one who knows God as his Father and Jesus Christ as his Lord. All of these things describe the true Christian. They describe the Apostle Paul along with all the saints in Rome. Yes, but the final thing I have to say at this point should be perfectly obvious. Do these things describe you in your relationship to God? And to the gospel. Do you find Paul in these verses is describing your own experience of the gospel? Do you know what it is to be a Christian truly? What it is to be called? What it is to be beloved of God? What it is to be a saint? Those to whom grace and peace flow continually from God the Father through the Son. Well, here is a letter for you. The book of Romans is addressed to you. Among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ to all who are in Rome. And let me say in Tallahassee as well. Beloved of God, called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. As we will not be having the Lord's Supper uh, this morning, let us stand in response to God's word in singing hymn number 69.